1: In London, this is The Economist, with Tasting Menu, a selection of the tastiest morsels from this week's issue. I'm Anne McElvoy, Senior Editor. And on the menu this week, Kim Jong-un releases some revealing photographs. A cyber heist befalls Bangladesh's central bank, and why you should treat evil bosses like vampires. But first, a hollow superpower was our cover line this week. Russia has witnessed scenes of jubilation as pilots returned home from Syria this week. Judging from the news pictures, Vladimir Putin had secured a famous victory. But such a claim rings hollow, as we argued in our cover leader.
2: After his unexpected declaration that the campaign is over, Mr Putin is claiming credit for a ceasefire and the start of peace talks. He has shown off his forces and, heedless of civilian lives, saved the regime of his ally Bashar al-Assad, though Mr Assad himself may yet prove dispensable.
1: But claims of all-out victory don't bear scrutiny.
2: Islamic State, or IS, remains. The peace is brittle. Even optimists doubt that diplomacy in Geneva will prosper.
1: But the prolific bombing campaign has given the Kremlin's propaganda machine plenty to work with.
2: Russia's president has generated stirring images of war to persuade his anxious citizens that their ailing country is once again a great power, first in Ukraine and recently over the skies of Aleppo. The big question for the West is where he will stage his next drama.
1: And there can be no doubt that Mr Putin favours confrontation over negotiation.
2: For him, military action is an end in itself. He needs footage of warplanes to fill his news bulletins. There will be no quagmire in Syria because the Kremlin is not in the business of nation-building.
1: Our Middle East and Africa section ran a piece on a continent that is in the business of nation-building, well, supposedly. Across Africa, projects are underway to improve the state of the region's numerous ports, yet investment alone won't fix them, as the article explained, if
3: officials can't help but pilfer from the coffers. Good ports are perhaps more important to Africa than any other region. On a continent bereft of good roads and productive factories... Fully 90% of trade happens by sea. Yet many African ports are dire, and most are tiny. And many operate at a leisurely pace. On average, containers sit waiting in African ports for three weeks before being taken to their final destination, compared with a week in other emerging markets. Best hope they're not filled with perishables. Simmering corruption can even change the order en route. Philip de Burr of Grey Page, a maritime investigations firm, recounts how a client was exporting copper cathodes from Congo through Dar es Salaam in Tanzania. When the containers were opened in China... It was discovered that the copper had been replaced by rocks. If this reverse alchemy is rare, it seems that graft is popular across the board. Last month, the head of the Kenya Ports Authority, or KPA, was sacked along with six other senior officials. Corruption has soared of late, grumble Kenyan businessmen. The port of Mombasa is completely rotten, says one chief executive. What is true of Mombasa is true of ports across Africa. As African businessmen
1: quibble over murky dealings, we move to North Korea, where the nation rejoices over its dear leader's relentless jingoism. But as a box in our Asia section explained, pieces
3: of propaganda are proving unwittingly useful for foreign powers. The whole point of the doomsday machine is lost if you keep it a secret. Dr Strangelove tells the Soviet ambassador... In Stanley Kubrick's satire on Cold War fears of nuclear conflict. The film is clearly a staple in North Korea. Which has recently been repeating its threat to nuke the White House until not even ashes are left. The country's official news agency has provided photographs to accompany Kim Jong-un's bellicose bleating. Mr Kim giving launch orders at a satellite centre. Mr Kim in a fur hat guiding a simulated ballistic missile re-entry. Mr Kim in the conning tower of a steaming submarine. Unbeknown to the model, the glamorous pictures can let slip vital information. James Pearson of Reuters enlarged a map in view on a desk in a recent photograph, overlaid it with Google Earth's imaging and tilted it to give a more useful overhead perspective revealing one North Korean missile target to be a nuclear plant in South Korea. Going nuclear in the workplace has its risks too. Our business section
1: explored how to stand up to a manager when their instructions clash with your morals. An article laid out the best practices and explained what your boss may have in
4: common with a vampire. Standing up for yourself can be bad for your career. When Countrywide, an American mortgage broker, lent on its staff to commit fraud by passing on defective loans to the government, it fired those who spoke out. Better to ward off unwelcome requests, and some new research suggests a strategy. Just as vampires in Gothic fiction can be kept at bay with a brandished crucifix, so too, it seems... evil bosses. To arrive at this conclusion, the researcher conducted field research at Indian firms to test whether those who kept a religious symbol at their desks were treated differently by their bosses to those who did not. And she tested the effects of using virtuous quotes as email sign-offs. Such as, better to fail with honour than succeed with fraud. In each case, she found that managers were less likely to ask those in their charge to act unethically if they displayed some indication of moral values.
1: It's doubtful that such a mantra would appear in the correspondence between the perpetrators of a recent cyber heist in Bangladesh. An article in our finance section elaborated on an audacious case of fraud.
2: Hackers masquerading as officials from Bangladesh's central bank asked the New York branch of the Federal Reserve to transfer nearly $1 billion to private bank accounts in Sri Lanka and the Philippines. By the time authorities cottoned on, $101 million had been nicked.
1: Finger-pointing began in earnest.
2: In the manner of a bank customer complaining about fraudulent credit card charges... Bangladeshi authorities say the Fed, which was acting as the central bank's bank, should not have paid out anything at all. The plot duly thickened. The Philippine authorities cannot say what happened to the $81 million sent to their country. Much of the money disappeared in its opaque casinos, which they say are not covered by rules to prevent money laundering a worry in itself
1: and even the fraudsters were hoisted by their own petard
2: were it not for a typo in one of their requests dozens more payments might have gone through
1: it's not just financial industries that have trouble coming to terms with the trials and tribulations of technological progress we flip through now to an article in our science section which praises recent developments in scientific publishing
0: never tried sharing data like this before said the tweet Feels like walking into a country for the first time. Exciting, but don't know what to expect.
1: Thankfully, this wasn't someone foolishly revealing credit card details.
0: David O'Connor of the University of Wisconsin-Madison was announcing his decision on February 14th to post online data from his laboratory's latest experiment.
1: And this sort of openness is far from common before work is published.
0: Once a paper is submitted to a journal, Its findings can languish unseen for months as it goes through a vetting process known as peer review. Left in the dark in this way, other practitioners may waste time and money conducting unnecessary experiments.
1: So Dr O'Connor's online experiment was warmly welcomed.
0: Within days, researchers from all over the world started contacting them, making suggestions and asking for samples to conduct work that Dr O'Connor's lab was ill-equipped to carry out. He describes the experience of data sharing as universally positive.
1: Our final piece this week set aside enthusiasm for progress. It hailed the recent resurgence of an old musical medium. Vinyls were once at risk of joining mini-discs in technological obscurity, but they've become fashionable once again. And as an article in our Britain section explained, the industry has been struggling to keep up with demand.
0: In 2007, just 205,000 vinyl records were sold in Britain. Last year, the total reached 2.1 million, the highest in 21 years. The Renaissance has been so rapid... It has caught the companies that press vinyl records off guard.
1: In an era when ownership is intangible, people are looking for something to hold on to.
0: Vinyl is resurgent because it gives a better sound, and with modern music so disposable, it is satisfying to own an actual artefact, says Mark Burgess, who founded Flashback Records.
1: And people appreciate the soothing thrill of the method.
0: It's also the ritual of putting the needle on the record and actively listening to the music, he says.
1: Yet demand has pushed up prices and created a bottleneck in production.
0: In an age of instant gratification, can even larger groups of young people be persuaded to be patient and pay extra for something of style and beauty?
1: Especially as our podcasts are free to enjoy right away. I'm Anne McElvoy and that was our tasting menu. If you're hungry for a little more, you can find all of our stories on our website at economist.com. In London, this is The Economist. (music)